It is good to see you all this morning, brothers, sisters, friends. We are going to continue in our summer series in the book of Psalms. So I ask you or invite you to turn and go ahead and turn to the book of Psalms. And we're going to be in Psalm chapter 3. So we're kind of just making our way each through each, each one for just a couple weeks before we start Exodus. I want to start out this morning as you turn there to share with you something that I read this week in the opening words of James Hamilton's theological commentary on the Psalms. He says this, does any literature in the world compare with the book of Psalms? The, Greek, the Greeks have Homer, the Romans Virgil, the Italians Dante, and the British Shakespeare. But nothing sings like the Psalms. As Ronald B. Allen has written, only a Philistine could fail to love the Psalms. No other body of poetry lyricizes the epic deeds of the living God, celebrating the past, signifying the future, interpreting the present, making God known. No other body of poetry both claims to be the word of God and has the Holy Spirit bear witness to that claim, a claim recognized by the people of God across space and through time. No other body of poetry has as its principal author God's chosen king, whose line of descent traces back through Judah to Abraham and further still to Shem, Noah, and Adam. Nor can any other poetic or literary tradition lay claim to the fact that the king, that the king David, in writing of his own experience with God in the world, simultaneously wrote as a type of the one to come, Jesus, the world's best and only hope. We love the Psalms because in them we encounter God, and as Scott Halfman says, affirms, knowing God is not a means to something else. Isn't that a good description of the Psalms? The last line, particularly, and is especially true in what we have seen thus far. We've, we've certainly, you know, been diving into the historical context of Psalms 1-2, and we'll talk a little bit about three this morning. But we love them uh, not because they are merely expressing the feelings of King David and we can relate to them. I mean, for that, we can turn to any poetry. But in them, we see God. We see him. We hear of the Lord's righteousness. We see his beauty. We see what it means to delight in and meditate on his Word. We have seen man's futility and of man's rebellion against the Lord and against his anointed one. We see his glorious reign in heaven and how he is laughing in the derision of man's rebellion. He has established his king and has placed him, his only begotten son, who will take possession of all the nations and will judge them with a rod of iron and blessed as we saw last week at the end of Psalm 2 
and blessed are all of those who take refuge in him. In Psalm 3, the focus does not change from the Lord. Five times in these eight verses, the formal name of God is used, Yahweh, Lord. The Psalms are showing us God. And they are not a means to something else, but to him. And so that is our purpose, reading the Psalms, studying the Psalms, and it is our delight is him. Let's look to chapter 3. Is it Psalm 3 or is it Psalm chapter 3? Y'all debate that in your minds. Starting in verse 1. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes. They are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cry aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of the many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, and you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. And this is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. So this is the first psalm in the Psalter with a title or a superscription up top. You see that there. And for being the first one, it sounds quite tragic. All crime is bad, but we also know that as moral creatures, that there are some crimes that are more heinous and egregious than others and require harsher punishments. And what's up on that list of what we would call more morally heinous or egregious would be crimes or when a, when a child murderously plots against their parents. These things are unthinkable. And they're terrible. And yet that is the backdrop of Psalm 3. And, and this is the time, as we see in that superscription, that title, when David's son, Absalom, rebelled against his father to take the throne and the very kingdom of God for himself. And because of his um, uh, cons conspiracy and rebellion, David, as it says right there in the, the title, David had to flee Jerusalem for his own life. Now these events are recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 15 through 17, but what David is doing in Psalm 3 is he's poetically recalling how even in that dark time, the Lord still had saved him and delivered him, which is for us typologically foreshadowing the eschatological coming of the king celebrated in Psalms 1 and 2. And I'll explain some of that in a little bit. 
Now, one might ask, why of all the people in the Bible did David have this kind of problem with his son? What did, what, what happened? I mean, of all people, this is, this is the king. This is King David, who is the man after God's own heart, right? He wrote a majority of the Psalms. How could this happen to him? Well, it all starts back in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel. David had been king for a while. Things in the kingdom were, were good, and that is until the sin with Bathsheba and then the murder of her husband to cover the sin. And that's where all of this starts. Because the prophet Nathan comes to David and he says, as prophets do, thus says the Lord. Uh-oh. He says, out of your house, evil will come against you. Thus says the Lord. So, so there in chapter 11, David sins, and then he hears the word of the Lord telling him that evil will come out of your house against you. In chapter 13, this is where the drama begins with his son Absalom. And it starts with another one of his sons, one of David's sons, Amnon, and one of David's daughters. And this whole story is filled with very wicked, sad, soap opera, uh, drama, and sin. In the end of that whole drama, Absalom ends up killing Amnon, his brother, for disgracing his sister. And of course, here's the father, David. His heart is broken over the whole situation, but very specifically, the text tells us that David mourns not over what happens to Tamar, but he mourns over the death of his son, Amnon, and particularly being killed by another one of his sons, Absalom. So Absalom flees Israel because he knows what he did. He knows the choice that he he made, and eventually David allows him to come back to, to Jerusalem, but will not see him, will not see Absalom. And because of all this, it's then, and that's when Absalom there in chapter 15 begins to plot against his father David. And basically, as the plot starts out, he goes into the city, and he starts telling all the people, hey, the king's busy, he can't judge you, what you, the problems that you have going on now. I will be that righteous judge. I'm here for you. I'm a man of the people, and I will take care of all of your problems. And over time, he began to build pop, uh, popularity, and he gained enough support that eventually Absalom claims himself to be king. He doesn't do this because he's, you know, he's lost his mind, but he does this because he has support. People have rallied behind him. Even some of the king's very own men have, re, have, have, have rallied uh, around him. And that's when David sees the proverbial writing on the wall and knows he better get out of there and flee from Jerusalem. And that's when David learns that his trusted counselor, Ahithophel, had turned against him to serve Absalom. Interesting note, Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. David 
prays that the Lord would turn Ahithophel's counsel against Absalom. He prays, Lord, take, turn it away, because he knows how good the counsel of Ahithophel is. There's another guy that comes up on the scene that wants to go with, flee with David, but David sees him, uh, Hushai, uh, and, and he tells him, he, I need you to stay back in the city and become one of the advisors of, of Absalom to gain his favor and then to turn the counsel against him. Now, Hushai does gain favor with Absalom. Just as the advisor Ahithophel is there, he is the man. He is the trusted counsel of all time. In fact, the, the scripture describes it in uh, chapter 16, verse 23, that Ahithophel's counsel was like the counsel of the word of God. That's some serious authority before the king. So Ahithophel counseled Absalom as David is fleeing. He says, Absalom, not only do you need to embarrass your father, if you know the story, you know what I'm talking about. But also, he says, give me 12,000 men, and I will lead an attack against David, and I will kill all of his men, and I will kill the king. We have now the tactical advantage. We have the momentum. Let's go get him. He's been on the run. Now, Hushai, he turns to Hushai, and Hushai counsels him and says, yes, we should attack David. But he says, but just not yet. Not, not yet. Though they are on the run, listen, this is still King David, right? You remember he was 13 and he killed Goliath. He has all these mighty men around him in Absalom at this moment. You may think you have the tactical advantage, but listen, if you lose this battle, man, this whole thing is done. His advice was to wait, gather some more forces around him, and then go. And this is what the scriptures say in 2 Samuel 17, verse 14. He says, for the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Because of the Lord, Absalom did what? He took the bad advice from Hushai, and he waited. Ahithophel was was right, but God decreed Absalom's defeat. Hushai was then able to get the, the intel to David that, hey, you have some time, but not very much. Strengthen yourself, prepare for battle, and that's what they did, and eventually Absalom is defeated and killed. So the danger here, un, uncertainly, right, an uncertainty here that we see in uh, Psalm chapter 3 as David is fleeing his son isn't exactly the end of the story just yet, but he's in the midst of it. And in the midst of it, David is, is filled with this pain and, and agony and betrayal and uh, this fight or flight emotions and disappointment and weariness and even some love for his son. And yet heartbroken to see his own son betray him and act in such ways of rebellion against him. That's the backdrop of Psalm 3. So what does then David's rescue from Absalom mean for us? How does Psalm 3 pertain to us if it's about David? Well, one of the ways that you can look at Psalm 3 particularly the Psalms in, in general, is that we can look at them and we can say, we need to imitate David. We need to imitate David's faith, 
We need to imitate his trust in God's promises that in our time of need, he will deliver us. And if we trust like David trusts, if we believe like David believed, and if we had faith like David had faith, then God will deliver us in our time of need. And so we pray. We ask others to pray. We gather others. We set out the prayer chains and we pray for one another. God would deliver us from whatever it may be. We can talk about the need to pray and ask the Lord to deliver us. People want to know what to do. And they, they want to know what to do so that they can do it. And this is why this is such a popular way to preach the Psalms. For example, David was delivered from Absalom and all the evil around him. And that was a real physical rescue, was it not? Was it not? Was David not in real physical danger? And did God not deliver him out of that danger? Believe God. Trust him. Have a little more faith. He'll deliver you from your danger, from your loss of health, whatever the, the problem is. But however, the problem with this interpretation is, is God doesn't always deliver and save the lives of his people in the same ways, even though they may call out to him like David did. Sometimes we end up dying. Sometimes we lose our children, and we lose our spouses, we lose our jobs, etc. In Acts chapter 12 is a good example of this. The apostle James was murdered by Herod the king. But at the same time, Peter was only arrested and eventually let go. Peter was spared, but not James. So does this mean that, that God loved Peter more than he loved James? Was one better than the other? But both of these guys, did they not love the Lord? Did they not love Jesus? Did they both not have family and friends that were praying for them? but yet one was delivered and the other wasn't. And this doesn't mean that we should not, that we shouldn't pray. This doesn't mean we should, should pray and petition the Lord. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't trust in the, in, in the Lord because he certainly does care for us and he cares for our condition physically. But what it does mean is that we're not always going to be delivered from the troubles and the dangers like David was when Absalom betrayed him. So if that's, not what, if, that's not, if that's not the way we're supposed to look at Psalm 3, then, then what are we supposed to do with Psalm 3? Well, Psalm 3 is pointing us not to David as the model for deliverance. Psalm 3 is not pointing us to David as the model of, of deliverance, but it is pointing us to the greater king who would come and has come. And he has come, and he has delivered, rescued, saved his people, and continues to do so. Jesus was rejected, but not because of the consequences of his own sin like David was. Jesus was without sin, but he still suffered because of who he is. He was the he is the Lord's 
anointed, the king of kings and the lord of lords, the nations raged against him and they still are raging today. He came to his own people and they did not receive them, receive him. He was the rejected king even in his hometown. He hung on a cross. I mean the ultimate sign of rejection. He was taunted, and he was railed at on the cross. And they sure sound a lot like the words that David heard. There's no salvation for him in God. Sounds a lot like save yourself. If you're the king, then save yourself. In this psalm, David says that he lay down and he slept and he awoke because the Lord had sustained him. Well, that points us forward to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. God saved David, his anointed from physical death, but God saved Jesus, his greater anointed one, the Son of God, through physical death. And what was the outcome of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection? It was the salvation of those who have rejected him. For his people. For those who were his enemies. Verse 8, he says, your blessing be on your people. The only hope for rebellious people like you and like me is through this king who was betrayed. Psalm 3 is showing us God's deliverance of David, but it is anticipating his son's work to bring salvation to his people. It points us to Christ, and when you look at Christ biblically, inevitably we are going to see our own need. And our greatest need is for not deliverance physically, but deliverance spiritually. Our greatest need is for salvation. And he is the only one who could deliver us. In verses 1 and 2, including the superscription there, Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son, describes David's complaint. He's describing David's complaint here, right? And he says, we, and we already discussed the context there of those, emotion, of those words, and this is why, that's why we hear such emotions there. Verse 1, O Lord, how many are my foes? They're rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation in him, in, for him in God, Selah. And there at the end of verse 2 is that, that word, uh, uh, say, Selah, and it shows up three times in the psalm, in this psalm, and it shows up in other psalms and for good reason. Now, we don't know exactly what the word Selah means. However, it is generally used in the psalms to, to mark turning points in the poetry, right? So in a, in a song, it's like a pause or instrumental part of the song where the song is transitioning to the next verse. And that pause is, is meant for us to think about those words, those things that we have just Sung. But in these first verses, the idea of what's happening to David is not good. So where we pause, we're saying, this isn't good. The situation of being on the run and, and outnumbered is not good. They are on the brink of being overwhelmed. And if God does not decree 
for Ahithophel's counsel to not be taken, then they are done. And for David, everything has changed. Everyone has turned against him. That's a legitimate feeling in a situation when David is used to having the favor of all the people. Right? He was mighty. He was a warrior. But now, oh, how the mighty have fallen. But worse than losing popularity, worse than losing reputation as a king, there is a real threat on his life. Many are rising against me by my own family, by my own friends, by my longtime counselors. Who can I trust even around me? And this is an overwhelming force against him. And in his soul, there's this resounding voice of condemnation there in verse 2. There is no salvation for him in God. This is a voice of condemnation. And it's telling him, God has turned from you, David. God has casted you aside, and he wants nothing to do with you. And why? Come on, you remember why. The sin of Bathsheba, the death, the killing, the murder of, his, of her husband. And certainly I think these words hauntingly remind David of what Nathan told him, that this would be the consequences of his sin. It's one thing for strangers to turn from you. It's a whole other thing if family and friends turn from you. But we're talking about on a whole other level if the Lord has turned from you. And certainly, if you were in David's shoes or his sandals, wouldn't that be a justifiable conclusion to have? There's no salvation for me. Who am I? Brothers and sisters, there is something here we can relate to. We may not have been abandoned by friends or family, or maybe you have. You've probably have not had many foes. Thousands rise up against you with threats on your life like David, and praise the Lord for that, unless you've been a part of some Baptist churches. Our situation does not compare. But when you sin, and when I sin, isn't it easy for us to think and to believe that God wants nothing more to do with us? Our sin condemns us. You see, what I thought here in, in these two verses is somewhat back to Psalm 2, where the natural condition of man uh, in, in our sinful flesh, we're desiring freedom, and we want no restraint. We rage against the Lord. We plot in, in, in vain to, to be away from the Lord and from his uh, anointed and to burst forth from those, those bonds. And so we turn to our own devices, the sin that we love. We turn to those things because we, we think that that's what's going to bring us freedom. That's what's going to bring us life. That's what's going to bring us joy and pleasure. But in all of those things, they have their consequences that brings us shame and condemnation. 
in many ways, and not to overspeak, sin can become our Absalom. Sin can surround us and become our enemy. And it surrounds us in, in such a way, it rises up against us in such a way that we feel justifiably condemned. And you know those things that for years that you may still struggle with. Whatever those may be, those things that exhaust us. The things that we're sick of. It's kind of the, the motivation, one of the major motivations we're praying for Christ to just come so we can just be done with this. Weak flesh. Those things that exhaust us. And like David, we want to run. And we want to flee. And we run from the truth through, through flat-out denial of our sin, or we suppress it, or we just shift the blame to, to someone else. We blame them for our sin. You made me do this. And if you hadn't done this, then I certainly wouldn't have done this. And we hear in our hearts what David heard. There is no salvation for him in God. Meaning, in our vernacular, you see this mess, you did that, and you do not deserve salvation, much less anything else that God gives you. And doesn't that sound familiar? Because it certainly sounds familiar to me. And the hard truth is that for all of us, just condemnation is true. We are all sinners. And we understand that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. And so it's easy for us to believe in our hearts at what point does God turn away from us and just say enough is enough. We are like Absalom. Sin is our Absalom. We're enemies against the king. We plot in vain, and it condemns us. That is a rough place to be with many foes surrounding us. But here's what's also true, because the response to those rising against David is informed by Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. The blessed man has meditated on God's word and knows that the Lord has promised to establish the blessings of Abraham through the king from Judah's line, which means there is no enemy that will overthrow God's plan to bless the world through David's kingdom. And second, we understand this, is that the Lord has decreed that David, the king, who was set on Zion, Psalm 2, that his seed would prevail over the nations, and therefore we hear in David's response is this in, Psalm, in verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, the lifter of my head. I cry aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of the thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Again, the, the musical pause there at, at verse 2 doesn't, doesn't make us stay there because David continues. 
The, the psalm continues not just to stay in the just condemnation and the just consequences of our sins and our failures and faults, but right there, some of the greatest words in all the Bible. We've said this over and over again, but hear it. It says, but you, O Lord, but you, O Lord, here am I. I'm surrounded. I'm condemned. I'm the sinner. I deserve this, but you, O Lord, the greatest words in all of the scripture, in all of the world, in his response from there. But you, O Lord, is based upon the biblical promises of God, not some fluffy garbage heard from some moron on TV or the internet, but from God's word. And that's what we hold on to. I better stop yelling because my kids will say, Dad, you yelled a lot today. In 2 Samuel 7, the Lord had promised to David. He said he would be his father and David would be his son. He even says there, and we prayed it this morning, my brother prayed, led us in prayer in that way that the father disciplines his son. He loves his son. He's going to discipline his son. And secondly, that even though God disciplines David when he sins, he says his steadfast love will not depart from him. And third, he says your house and your kingdom, the one that Absalom is attacking and trying to destroy and set his own, the Lord says shall be made forever before me. Why would God say this? Knowing the heart of David and where David would turn. Grace. The promise that God made to David connects him to the promises that the Lord made to Abraham in Genesis 12. That you would be a blessing to many nations. In Genesis 15, when the Lord said to Abraham, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, and your reward shall be very great. And this is why David says in verse 3, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. You are my protection. You are my only safe spot. No matter who may hide me, wherever, however I flee and where I go, you are my protection. You are my glory. Meaning everything good about me is you. Everything I have, all my reputation, reputation is you. My reputa reputation is you. What is praiseworthy in my life is not what I have accomplished it's not the accolades that I have received or the popularity of people liking me. My glory is you. And then in verse 4, David prays and the Lord hears. And we know that God answered that prayer, right? The confusing of the, the, the counsels of Ahithophel. But what's crazy is verse 5. This is crazy. Look at verse 5. David says that he can sleep despite the distress, 
despite the term torment in the agony. That night when everything was flipped upside down, his life was about to be ended or could have been ended. David was able to sleep. Now that's confidence in the Lord. And that brings him to a place where he has peace. And why? Because the Lord will sustain him. And if the Lord sustains him, then why fear man? What can they do? Again, this, this confidence just seems crazy. In, in, in a lot of ways, it sounds arrogant, doesn't it? There's a story of Thomas Jackson, who was affectionately named by his men of the Army of the Northern Virginia as Stonewall Jackson. And they called him that because he would lead his men from the front. And, and he was one of the um, best generals in, during the Civil War. Um, and they called him that because he would lead his men from the front. And because he led his men from the front, he took a lot of fire. But when he was taking fire, he would never flinch. He would never falter. The story goes he's lost. He had horses shot out from under him. And his men would see that. And they called him Stonewall Jackson. And when the general was asked, aren't you afraid of getting shot and killed? Then what would your men do? Now, general Jackson believed he was, a, um, he was a, a strong Presbyterian, and he believed in God's providence and God's sovereignty over life, maybe even to a fault in some ways. And he said this, oh, but this is a great statement when he was asked that question. He said, my religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. Now, ironically, if you don't know the story of Stonewall Jackson, he was accidentally shot by some of his own men in a picket line at night who thought that he was an enemy, and that eventually led to his death. And that kind of confidence, of course, shouldn't make us reckless, but being able to sleep when the enemy surrounds you sounds pretty crazy. Overconfidence and confidence in things that are failing and people and life and health and jobs and government and talents, those things will fail us. But confidence in Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, that's what makes us confident in the face of swelling fear around us. That if we are in Christ, then in him we are safe in his arms. And no matter what may come our way, we are just as safe in battle as we are in bed. In verse 7, we see how that confidence, that calm, that refreshed by good sleep, David cries out, Arise, O Lord, save me. Oh, my God, for you strike all the enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings be on your people, Selah. David's cry echoes the prayer of Moses. In Numbers 10, 35, arise and let your enemies be scattered and, and let those who hate you flee before you. The call in this prayer is, is Lord, come on our behalf and, and make war upon our enemies. Upon our enemies, which are your enemies. And this language here in verse 7 is not soft. It's not fluffy language. No, it's punch them in the face until their teeth break out and fall out. That's harsh. 
And, and then in verse 8, we see the, this, this grand reversal take place from what we heard in the tempting, condemn, uh, condemning voice of verse 2. We see in verse 8, he says, there is no salvation in verse 2. But in light of that, God's promises in his word, in verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, this is true. There is no salvation in the counsel of the wicked. And as wise and as trusted as guys like Ahithophel was, nor, uh, nor will salvation be found in the outward impressive show of kings and, and rulers and even how handsome they are like Absalom was. Where David's confidence is for his salvation is where? It is in the Lord. It is in his word. It is in his promises. Where is their salvation alone? Salvation belongs to the Lord. And again, this psalm isn't pointing us to the superiority of David or even his example, but it is pointing us to the supremacy of Christ, to the King of Kings, who has overcome the enemy, who is victorious over sin and death, and has accomplished our eternal salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. In myself, I stand condemned in my sin. In myself, I stand sinking in my guilt. But you, O oh Lord, you are my salvation. God may not save you from shame and death like he saved David, but brothers and sisters, believe this, that he will save you through shame and death like he saved Christ. In Romans chapter 6, verse 5, he says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we have died to ourself and to our sin, and we are now alive to Christ, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. The good news of the gospel is that we stand now righteous before God because of Christ's righteousness given to you by his grace. And because of Christ, he has made us a new creation, no longer in condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's not me. That's Romans chapter 8, verse 1. 1 John 3 by this we shall know that we are the truth and reassured our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Jesus Christ bore the wrath, and that gives us confidence of crippling, our crippling fear, accusations, shame, and guilt. And the promise of the gospel is that when you die, we will lie down, sleep, and we will wake again, for the Lord will sustain you. Listen to these words. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, 
it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is washed, wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. As we look for, to the things, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen, they are eternal. Salvation belongs to the Lord alone. It is his work alone and only he can save us from our sins that rise up against us. We are wasting away, but he is renewing this affliction, this sin that I, that I hope that if you are in Christ, you are tired of. That one day, because of him, he is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond anything else. And therefore, brothers and sisters, we can say confidently and we can sleep soundly that he is our shield and he is our glory. And all God's people say, and amen.